There's a book that came out years ago called The Wounded Healer by Henry Nguyen. I don't normally give his work a blanket endorsement, and it's not any theology or worldview that I want to communicate to you. It's a story that he includes in this book. The book is The Wounded Healer, and he, in this book, tells the story from ancient India. And this story from ancient India was called Four Royal Brothers. And these four brothers decided, each one of them, to master a special ability. And so time went by, and these royal brothers finally met to reveal what they had learned, what was their special ability they had developed. I have mastered a science, said the first royal brother, a science by which I can take but a bone of some creature and create the flesh that goes with it. I can do that. I, said the second brother, now know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there is flesh on its bones. I can do that. Well, the third royal brother said, Oh, yeah? I am able to create its limbs if I have flesh, the skin, and the hair. I can grow the limbs. I can do that. And I, concluded the fourth royal brother, I know how to give life to that creature if its form is complete. I can do that. The story goes on. Thereupon the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone so they could demonstrate their specialties. As fate would have it, the bone they found was a lion's bone. One added flesh to the bone. He could do it. The second grew hide and hair because he could do it. The third completed it with matching limbs because he could do it. And the fourth gave the lion life because he could do it, according to this fable. Shaking its mane, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on his creators. He killed all four royal brothers and then vanished contentedly into the jungle. It's kind of a depressing little story. Don't do that one at night with the kids. But Nguyen comments after telling this story, recalling this story from ancient India, he writes, we too have the capacity to create what can devour us. Goals and dreams, he writes, can consume us. Possessions and property can turn and destroy us. But he's right. He's absolutely right. We can become passionate about things that in and of themselves are not necessarily bad, but without being aware of the bigger picture and how one thing may lead to another, things that may, for some people and even sometimes in our lives, be benign can become something, listen, that can control us, overcome us, and consume us. You see, are you still talking about the India the ancient India tale and the four royal brothers. No, I changed the subject. But because the same thing can be said about idolatry in our lives. We can set our affections and our likes on some things that in and of themselves might not be bad, but it's how we fix our affections on those things. How much we enjoy certain things that they take on the character of an idol in our lives. Idolatry is nothing new in Scripture. I mean, right from the beginning, right? Even going back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the Ten Commandments, what do you have? You shall have no other what? You shall have no other gods before me. I always found the prophecy of Hosea to be a heartbreaking one. The story of Israel remaining unfaithful to Yahweh and the, and the assignment that Hosea got. Hosea was to take his wife out of a life of harlotry, and, and eventually she went back into it. And Hosea's task from God in Hosea chapter 3 was, go win your wife back. It's like, what? Yeah, go win your wife back. You're going to be a picture 
of how faithful I am and how I yearn for the very people who have forsaken me, my covenant people. And I find the words in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to jot down a few of these helpful texts dealing with idolatry, Hosea 3, 1, it says, Then the Lord, or Yahweh, said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as, listen to this, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other idols and love raisin cakes, or these sacrifices they would offer to false gods. That's a succinct, helpful, graphic picture of idolatry. Let me say something about idolatry. We don't commit idolatry with just one hand. When we are involved in idolatry, we are holding something tightly with both hands. And the language that he uses here with Hosea is that you, if you're going to forsake Yahweh, whom you're supposed to be holding on to with both hands of affection, you let go totally of Yahweh and use both hands, all your energy now, on something other than Yahweh, something other than God. That's idolatry. Your Bible's open to Psalm 115. You have a great illustration here or explanation of what idolatry is in the first eight verses. If you want to write this reference down too. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, or O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. He comes right out of the chute here just talking about the grandeur of God. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? (laughs) Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, and they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And it's just a matter of time, verse 8, and those who make them will become like them everyone who trusts in them. Their hands, their feet, their eyes, their nose, their ears, everything is carved into the wood or into the stone or into the metal, and it can't do anything. In contrast, verse 3, our God's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. See, those who go after idols would release the God who owns the heavens, who created the heavens, and can do anything he wants in creation, and with both hands, now grasp something that is, is dead. It's never had life. That's idolatry. So, you know, I've given you three passages of scripture there, and your mind is probably right now in, your, in someone's living room, and you're looking on the mantle over the fireplace, and there's little idols up there, and you're saying, well, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have idols. Well, do you understand that those idols on the mantles back in this day, if you will, or at the false temples, were representations of something that was treasured in the heart. Idolatry isn't merely relegated to the mantles. Idolatry starts and maintains its full life in the heart, in the human heart. I want to give you a few more helpful verses here by way of reminder. Write most of the references down. Let me read them to you. Romans one twenty five, And Paul says, For they, those who rebel against God, for they exchanged the truth of God. They let go of God's truth. They were holding with both hands. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And now they hold the lie with both hands. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Romans 1.25. Idolatry is something that's going on in the heart. Ezekiel chapter 14. Just write that chapter down and read that during your devotions. It's a very, a very graphic uh, uh, illustration of idolatry in the heart. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, the elders are coming to Ezekiel to see if he has, a wor- if he have, if he has any calls for them from God. Do you get anything from God for us? Do we need to know anything? And God's basically in Ezekiel 14 saying to 
uh, Ezekiel, hey, the elders are coming and they want to hear from me, and you tell them I just have one message for them, that they have estranged themselves from me through the idols of their heart. They've placed right in front of their face the occasion for why they stumble the way they stumble. It's heart idolatry. And underline those phrases, idols of the heart, right before their face, estranged from me. And you'll underline that several times in just the first few verses of Ezekiel 14. Idolatry happens at the level of the heart. You show, according to the Ezekiel passage, you're going to see this. You show me what you struggle with, and I'll show you how there is worship behind that of something that you have replaced God with. Also write down James 4, 1 through 4, as I give you several passages here of idolatry being at the heart level. James 4 says, you want to know why you get angry, why you fight and quarrel, why you strategize against each other? It's because you want something you can't get, or you might lose something that you really love. It could be a relationship, a thing, an account, a testimony, a position. It's something that you now worship instead of God. And God, by verse 4 of James 4, will call them adulterers, the same language he uses in Hosea. It's someone who's being unfaithful. That's idolatry. Another one, Ephesians 5, 5, uh, just by way of introduction, Paul says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person, listen to this phrase, or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's right there where Paul says, so you show me a, a person, a man or a woman, who amasses things just for the, the joy and the thrill of it, that would be a covetous person. Paul says, I have another name for a covetous person. They are an idolater. He says it again in Colossians 3, verse 5, in the sister epistle. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and, listen, greed, comma, which amounts to idolatry. He says it twice. Hmm. I guess if there's two more helpful verses I'd like to show you, um, I want you to see on your page. So I'm going to give you the two references, and I want you to turn to them with me. Just let them speak for themselves, that idolatry is a heart thing. The first one is Psalm 36, and turn there with me. Psalm 36, the first few verses. The first four verses, if you don't like uh, blanks. Psalm 36, listen to this. It's talking about a conversation of sin, listen, in the heart. A conversation that goes on in your heart when there's sin. And it's going to connect it to idolatry. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For it, his heart and his transgression, flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, he has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good, and he does not despise evil. You say, well, the word idolatry is not there. But this whole thing of holding something with both hands that's endearing to you, what you let go of in order to take hold of is present here, and it happens at the heart level. You let go of the fear of God and awareness and enjoyment of God in your moments and in your proximity in order to seize a transgression that has deceived your heart. Keep Psalm 36, 1 through 4 in mind and turn to one more passage until we settle into a third pa an, uh, an additional passage. Go with me to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. I want you to have all these verses in one clump in your notes on idolatry. It's not merely an issue on the mantle, even more. It is an issue of the heart. Isaiah 44, verse 20. In my Bible, I, I have these cross-references between Psalm 36 and Isaiah 44 that I've written in. Listen to this one verse. Isaiah 44, 20. Someone who's involved with idolatry. It says, he feeds on ashes. 
a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This whole passage is considered the discussion of the, 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 the frugality or the, uh, the, the fault, the harm, the folly of idolatry, especially going back to verse 9. And that's how, that's how he concludes in verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A couple of quotes for you. Just let these wash over. After hearing these verses, after seeing the mantle and realizing that's not the real issue of idolatry, the real issue is what's going on in my heart, I had to let go of both hands of the true God, the creator, in order to take hold with both hands something other than him that I look to for satisfaction. You have those verses. Here is what St. Augustine used to say and would, had written. He said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. That's interesting. John Calvin said that our human heart, every human heart, is a quote-unquote factory of idols. He's right. And someone else put it this way, today's idols are more on, in the self than on the shelf. That's cute. That's true. It's true. So the observation I make here as we, as we launch into this new series, a short series, is this. Every sinful choice that I make, every sinful choice that you make is sourced in idolatry. It's sourced in idolatry. I want something more than I want Jesus. It always comes down to what James writes in James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed with his own heart. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's a choice all along the line. Idolatry of the heart. There's dissatisfaction. And so there's going to be a substitution. Instead of God, I bring something or someone else into my life for relief, for saving, for rescue, for contentment, for joy. And over a season of time, there's gratification over and over, and I become accustomed to this. This is my go-to deliverance. And the end is always devastation. That's what James taught. So, back to your notes. How do you expose heart idolatry? After going through all these introductory verses, how do you expose heart idolatry? Well, heart idolatry is exposed with you and me getting real honest with ourselves. And I'll give you five pastoral um, data questions, okay? Number one, be honest about what you want more than anything when you are angry. When you are angry, and not just about something bad that's going on, it could be a righteous anger, at least when it starts, but it digresses into sinful words and attitudes and actions. That's when you're ready to answer number one. That's when I'm ready to answer number one in my own heart. What do I want more right now, more than anything, when I'm angry? Because I'm saying, in essence, if I could just have that, then I would be happy. I'd be at peace. I'd be content. That's worship talk. Number two, question number two in our inventory. Where, you have to be honest with, where you run when you need delivered. Where you run or what you run to when you need delivered. Delivered from what? Delivered from a hardship. Delivered from pain. It could be a, 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 an emotional, a physical pain. It could be a pain of a relationship. What do I run to in order to get escape from that? For some people, they run to a, a different relationship. For some, they'll self-medicate themselves. Just to have a break, just to, just to, um, just, just to be saved for a moment. Where you and I run when we need to be, quote-unquote, delivered, reveals an idol in our life. 
Number three, what you consume when you need a satisfaction. This can be everything from, from uh, food. Now, we all need food, and we're, we're coming into that time of the year where we just put the, put the scale away. Get it out in January. I understand that. I won't, my wife won't let me put mine away yet, but I'm trying to hide it. She keeps finding it. But I'm talking about the other 11 ones. <laughs> what do we consume when we need satisfaction? It, could not, it might be something with our, our appetites, our bodily appetites of, for food or, or beverage, or it could be things for our eyes, things we want to expose our eyes to, maybe things that we want to expose our, 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 our mind to. What do we consume when we need satisfaction? You say, well, how do I know if that's an idol? Because uh, how does the thought of removing that from your life, excising that from your life, how does that land with you? If you panic, we've touched a nerve of idolatry. Number four, be honest about how you fill the quote-unquote if-onlys when you worry. The if-onlys. You know what this means. I'm coming at this from five different directions. The same thing. But sometimes if you're like me and I'm a worrier, um, I, I'll use language in my thoughts at the very least. Like if, if, if only he would say this, she would do this, they would do this. If only we could settle on this. And when I start using if only, I'm, I'm saying, I'm revealing more than I realize that I, if that were in place, then there would be control. There would be beauty by my definition, and, and when I start talking like that, I'm saying what alone will bring me satisfaction during my worry, and that's idolatry talk. Let me give you one more. Hard idolatry is exposed when you are honest about what are your perceived needs for functioning responsibilities. I need to unpack that one a little bit. It's, it's uh, wordy. What are your perceived needs for functioning responsibilities? I'm going to have to start this one explaining it on the end, at the end of the sentence. What do you mean by functioning responsibilities? God has called me at this chapter in my life to be a pastor. And secondarily, I have an opportunity to do some teaching. But my primary calling is, is, is a pastor. Not just a preacher, a pastor. And I can get into a, um, a phase, into a mode like you can in what you're called to be and do, that, well, I can't do what God's called me to do until all of this stuff over here falls perfectly in place by, um, by my liking. I need to have this person or this situation settled so that I can get on with doing what God's called me to do. And until that gets unjumbled, then I can't do what God's called me to be. Now, I'm using myself as an example. Your turn. God's called you, man, if you're married, to be a husband who loves and leads his wife with grace and with resiliency and humility. And how many verses do I need to show you on that one, right? That's, a, that's, an, that's an easy verse one. But a man can say, well, if, 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 if I could just have my kids be this way and my wife be this way, then I would be able to be what I'm supposed to be. Wife, I could change the word there. God calls you to be a wife, uh, a house manager if you have children and you have the home and, and you're supposed to work and your husband's supposed to help you be a success in what God's called you to do with that. But a wife can say, well, if only I would get from him or from the kids or from so-and-so um, uh, a, little, a little bit different life. If I could get more or have different, then I would be able to do what God calls me to be as a wife. We can go on down the line and keep changing titles. I think you see where I'm going here. Listen, if God's called me to be a pastor, if he's called me to be a, fa a, a father, a husband, if he's called you to be a wife, a mother, then we know this. God will never allow us to be involved in life situations, even messes, that will forbid us from living out what God's called us to be and do. And the minute I protest that and say, yeah, but if only this 
would be different over here, then I could, I could do what he's called me to be. That's idolatry talk. We've, we've identified an idol. I worship this over here. Whatever's out of whack. So, five inventory questions. And I want to restate my observation. Every sinful choice I make, every sinful cho- choice you make, is sourced in idolatry. I don't know about you, but the first half hour of this study is kind of exhausting in my mind. As, as Ernie Bowman would say, it's unfun. I'm not enjoying this. Don't do this as a devotional at the campfire. It's, it's, it's not cool. This is tiring. It's depressing. And I would agree to every one of those. And hopefully you're a little desperate right now. Hopefully you're saying, okay, um, is there an answer for this? Is there an answer? Is there an alternative to heart idolatry? Because you've just described an avalanche that is crushing me. Just reading those verses without comment shows me that I'm in dire danger of being an idolater on most days not even realizing it. And now that I've caught a glimpse of it just by reading verses out loud, this is foreboding. That's my word today, foreboding. Is there any alternative to this? Or maybe you have this question. When I go to the wall with my anger or my worry or my lust, what has to change? Is there an alternative, a solution to heart idolatry? I think you can guess what my answer is going to be. Yes. A truly satisfying alternative. And this alternative is not a concept. This alternative is a person. And you meet this person in Psalm 23. Turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. When you see the alternative, watch this. I'm convinced by God's grace during our four studies, if if we look hard and press in deep to Psalm 23, we will be so awed and captured by what we're going to see, watch this, that we will with both hands let go of the bad alternatives and with both hands once again take up the true God. Just from Psalm 23. The sad thing about Psalm 23 is we save it to read it at funerals. And this is a psalm for the living. So what do you say? Just by way of introduction this evening, Let's lay down our fun meals in the sandbox and pull up a chair at the feast table of the king's banquet hall. There are many chairs that are available for us to sit in, but let's sit in this one familiar chair for a few weeks together. I'll know when we're done because every time we read it afterwards, it'll always read new to us. And that's Psalm 23. Look at Psalm 23. The Lord... Yahweh is my shepherd, and I shall not want, I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh, the Lord, forever. A couple of things about the structure of Psalm 23 as we try to make a familiar friend new. This, this psalm structure 
is about the covenant God. You have at the beginning and you have at the end the capital, uh, all capitalized Lord, L-O-R-D, which is signifying to us, the reader, this is God's personal name of his self-revelation that he gave to Moses. And we see uh, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament translated from Hebrew, we're going to see that. It's, it's Yahweh. It's his covenant name. You say, what does that mean? That's his personal name. That's how he introduces himself, if you will, to what will be his nation, his chosen people. And just by using that name at the beginning and at the end here, it's the bookends of this psalm, we are reminded this is a very personal God of the individual. A lot of times when we read the Old Testament and we talk about Yahweh and his covenant name and the covenant people and all that, uh, we kind of come up short of a full explanation of what that means. It's like, well, that's a big group of people, the Jews, and he's the God over all them. And and they're just all supposed to look up and stare at him because they're just a mass of people and he's God. And, And it's like, oh, no. Even in the Old Testament, with the covenant people, this was a very personal one-on-one relationship with each one of them. Right down to their rooms in their home. Hold your finger here and look at the Shema. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. You'll know this as soon as I start reading it. And I want you to see how the word, the name Yahweh and, and, and the praise that's appropriate for him is something that is super personal. Listen, to the individual, to the room in the house, even to doorposts. Deuteronomy 6, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Yahweh, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So far that just sounds like a group of people with a God over them. Oh, it's so much more personal than that. Verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Oh Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as Yahweh, the Lord, your God, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And look at it, it keeps getting more personal. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Singular, individual, not just all your hearts. All of you just look up to the sky and worship God. This is one-on-one here. With all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns or cut cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear the Lord your God only. You shall worship him and swear by his name. He's not just talking to the mood of the mob, the size of the crowd. He's talking to the individuals in that crowd. Psalm 23 is wonderfully, refreshingly intimate. As a matter of fact, some have rightly called this a psalm or a hymn of confidence. I like that wording. Some even suggest that Psalm 23 finds David, the author, on the run. What part of his life? Well, there's different people that take different views on that. Is he running from Absalom? Is he running from Saul? Who's he running from? And there's a lot of debate and discussion on that, and that's fine, but there seems to be agreement that he's on the run as he's writing these words. If so, as David writes these six verses, 
David is in a place, not of luxury, not of safety. He is in a place of vulnerability. As he writes these words, he is desperate. Yet for some reason, in despairing situations and circumstances, in vulnerable settings, David seems to be content. He seems to be settled. He seems to be, listen, distracted with the close proximity and care of his shepherd. His shepherd doesn't mean that the difficult circumstances have been, have been vanquished. Oh, those are still around him as he writes this. They're just being eclipsed by the shepherd. There's two pictures that you're going to see as we study this in the coming three weeks or coming three studies. Number one, it's the picture of a shepherd. You're going to see that uh, the first four verses, sweet verses. What What does the picture of the shepherd communicate? It communicates his consistent sufficiency for you. His consistent sufficiency. By the way, this isn't the first time we've heard of our Lord being a shepherd. Jot a few of these references down. Psalm 28, 9. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Cross over into the New Testament. You have John 10, 11. I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 20, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. We've seen this in our study of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Even in 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you pastors, you elders will receive the unfading crown of glory. And we find again in the last book of the Bible, from the beginning to the end. Revelation 7, 17, for the lamb is the center of the throne. Did you get that? The picture is a lamb. Is the center, is in the center of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. The lamb is the shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the first picture is that, that's one that's familiar, and that's that he's a shepherd, and it pictures, as we'll see, his consistent sufficiency. But the second picture we're going to see in this psalm, in the last two verses, verse 5 and 6, is the picture of a, of a host. A host. And what is this going to teach us? It's going to show us his lavish sufficiency. There's a victory celebration going on at his house. And you're the guest. And the spread will take your breath away. Remember, David's on the run, and perhaps in a panic, with external circumstances as he writes this. How does he still his heart? By remembering his shepherd and his host. Remembering his consistent sufficiency, the shepherd's consistent sufficiency, and the host's lavish sufficiency. I'll never forget when our kids were really young, like Jared. Jared had just been invented not long ago, and uh, we put him with someone that was going to babysit him, and, and my mom wanted to take us on a, on a short cruise, a small cruise ship, and, and this is a long time ago, before the year 2000. And uh, daughters were young, they got to go. I had never been on a cruise ship, let alone a small one or a big one. It was called the Big Red Boat. It, it was, the entertainment was gospel quartets, and the speakers were Adrian Rogers, John MacArthur, and uh, Jerry Vines, and some people like, I'd never heard of those guys, just kidding. And it was, it was awesome. It was good speaking, good, good music. My mom, I always have a place in my heart for Southern Gospel. It was like, wow, this is fun. And there was... It was, it was great to be with so many Christians and all that, but I wasn't ready for how we were going to eat on a cruise, especially a Christian cruise. 
um, there was food everywhere. And as much as you wanted at any time of the day. You want a pizza at 3 in the afternoon or 3 in the morning? Great, we got one for you. I mean, it was crazy. It was almost embarrassing. I was grateful, don't get me wrong. But I wasn't used to that kind of lavish treatment. You know, sometimes someone will spoil you and it, and it can even make you squirm a little bit. Like, I don't deserve this and I don't know how to handle all this well. And it's just new. I'm not saying it's bad, it's just new. I think after we study verses 5 and 6, whatever you're going through right now, you're going to be satisfied with his lavish sufficiency. It might even make you a little uncomfortable at first, but that's okay. It'll win you. Now, if you look at the two pictures here, that of a shepherd and that of a host, I want you to observe something. David himself, in his life, would have observed other shepherds and other hosts. And he would have seen bad shepherds. He would have seen bad hosts. But he also would have seen top shelf shepherds, top shelf hosts. So he has a memory bank to draw from with these two pictures. Not only had David observed these roles in others, but I want you to observe something else. A second thing, David himself had held both of these roles himself. He himself, David, is a shepherd. He himself, David, is a host. But there's a third thing I want you to observe. Not only have David seen these roles being lived out in a good way and a bad way, not only did he own these roles himself, but he was blown away with how the Lord filled these two roles. He was absolutely blown away. And he would know what to notice because of what he'd seen and the roles he had filled. No wonder he opens with the words of verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, and I'm not going to lack anything. Hmm. Well, let's outline the series before we uh, finish introducing it. A simple series outline. These are our next and final three studies. And I wanted you just to have the 25,000-foot view tonight to make you hungry. Because hopefully at this point, you're already curiously weighing your idols against this Lord. And there is no argument which one will deliver to you a lasting contentment. Here's our, here's our outline for the next three studies. Number one, we will look at the comprehensiveness of his care. The comprehensiveness of his care. So what are we going to study that? And this is next Sunday night, Lord willing, we'll do this one. When we talk about the comprehensiveness of his care, it will answer this question that we are probably asking. Well, can it handle anything? Can this care from this shepherd and this host handle anything I'm facing? Because I'm facing a lot, and it, what I face and the difficulties I face make me, in my anger or worry, want to run to certain things that I've gotten comfortable running to. Or they make me run from things. They make me want to crave some things instead of God himself. So talk to me about the comprehensiveness of his care. We'll see that in our next study, in the first few verses. And then we'll see secondly in this study, number two, the constancy of his care. Not just the comprehensiveness of his care, but the constancy of his care. This will answer the question, is it always there? Okay, I... This shepherd and this host might be good in the ninth inning, but is he good in the first eight innings of my life? Is he always there with this comprehensive care? Is, it, is this constant? Or is this just a game and a pep rally once a week on Sundays for 90 minutes? And which is it? And the third study, which we'll look at the last two verses, number three, is the crescendo of his care. The crescendo of of his care. This will answer the question, is it going to be this good into the future? I mean, he might get me out of something now, or at least settle me in something that I can't see the end of the storm now, but it, is it always going to be? Is this kind of care timeless? 
even when new issues come into my life that I didn't even see coming. This psalm's going to answer all that. You know the name Paul Tripp and Tim Lane. They've written a book called How People Change. I'm going to read to you as we get ready to close just a few comments from page 135 of that book. Listen to this. God calls you to be dissatisfied. You get that? Does that make sense? God calls you to be dissatisfied. You should be discontent, restless, and hungry. The Christian life is a state of thankful discontent or joyful dissatisfaction. I love that. They continue. That is, I live every day thankful for the grace that has changed my life, but I am not satisfied. Why not? Because when I look at myself honestly, I have to admit that I am not all I can be in Christ. I am thankful for the many things in my life that would not be there without his grace, but I will not settle for a partial inheritance. In this sense, it is right for me to be discontent. It is right for me to want nothing less than all that is mine in Christ. He does not want us to enjoy only a small portion of the riches he has given us. He calls us to wrestle, to meditate, to watch, to examine, to fight, to run, to persevere, to confess, to resist, to submit, to follow, and pray until we have been transformed into his likeness. God calls you to be dissatisfied. <laughs> Thankful discontent. Joyful dissatisfaction. So let me just suggest a, a prayer to you as you and I go through this week in anticipation of next Sunday night. I would encourage you to read Psalm 23 every day this week. Do it with your Advent reading or your Bible reading schedule you're doing, you're, you're doing right now. Throw Psalm 23 into it. And perhaps pray like this. Number one, Lord, open my eyes to see you. Open my eyes to see you. David sees something and I want to see it. He's describing a shepherd he sees and a host that is overwhelming him. Help me to see you, Lord, in this psalm. Number two, Lord, thank you for your promise of yourself. That's what I want. Even when I have let go of you in order to, to reach out with both hands to something lesser than you, perhaps just one of your gifts, I let go of the giver and hold on to the gifts for my contentment and my joy and my stability. But Lord, I, I want to let go of the gifts and once again grasp you. Lord, thank you for your promise of yourself. And number three, Lord, expose are you ready for this prayer? This is a hard one. Lord, expose my idolatrous substitutes. In other words, Lord, would you love me enough to expose what I'm holding on to with two hands instead of you? Expose, Lord, my other bland options. Expose my synthetic messiahs, my temporary distractions my nearsighted vision, my tunnel vision. Lord, would you please expose my worship disorder? In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11, 13, talk, 11 through 13, talk about this worship disorder, not just in Israel, but in southeast Michigan. And it can be on this side of this desk. I'm guilty too. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, has a nation changed gods when they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, where the water's made. They have forsaken me, to cut for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, and they not only can't create water, they can't even hold water. 
That's the ultimate worship disorder. And Psalm 23 is going to be our alternative. Derek Kidner, a great commentator on the book of Psalms, says these words, and I close with these. He writes, Death or depth and strength underlie the simplicity of this psalm. Depth and simplicity. He continues, Its peace is not escape. Its contentment is not complacency. There is readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack. And the climax reveals a love which homes towards no material goal, that's an idol, but to the Lord himself. Yeah, that's Psalm 23. So if it's just the same with you, how about if all of us just agree to pull this out of the funeral services for the next few weeks? Because right here in this well-known psalm is a shepherd and a host who delights in overwhelming you. And he will fight for your affections so that you let go of cisterns that can't produce water, let alone hold water, and come back to the source himself once again. Father, thank you for this time where we can look at a psalm that, just as in a flyover, does create a frustration in our heart that we're reading of you and our synthetic messiahs are getting small just in the introduction. We know they're synthetic. We know they are not lasting because we have to keep running back to them. Not because they work, but because if they don't, if they'd work, we wouldn't have to keep running to them. We wouldn't have to keep running to the abuse, the substance abuse. We wouldn't have to keep running to relationships. We wouldn't have to keep running to control in order for us to be at peace. And so, Lord, your mercy to us this evening has been reminding us what idolatry is, reminding us it's not on the mantle, it's in our heart, and reminding us that there's still a better answer and our frustration is a good thing. Frustrate us, Lord, sweetly and mercifully back to yourself and overwhelm us with your comprehensive sufficiency and your lavish sufficiency as we study Psalm 23. We love you, Lord. And we press now further into December, further into this Christmas season. Thank you for the gospel, how it's gone out through our church this weekend, yesterday in such a large scale, but even today with an Uber driver who wanted to know what the sermon was about today, and the gospel was given to him. And to a guest who came and talked after the service, and God's drawing her. Continue to do it, Lord. Keep us discontent in ourselves and hungry for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.